It's really lovely to see you today. If you're here visiting, we really do give you a warm welcome. My name is Jeff, and I'm the senior minister here at the church. And, uh, and you've landed, if you've uh, just joined us, in the second week of our series called Inspired, where we're looking at the Bible and the Word of God. And last week, we started our series by asking the question, what is the Bible? And we talked about it being a place of education, a place where we learn the mind of Christ. Uh, Jerome said that to know Scripture is to know Christ, and to be ignorant of Scripture is to be ignorant of Christ. And the importance of having a biblical worldview, the Bible says that we should be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And we considered what it is to have a biblical education, to be educated uh, by this Word of God. We thought about the fact that this is a holy Bible, the Biblia, the, the holy books of God, and that it's not just one book, but it's, it's a collection of books. It's a library of books, 66 in total, that we find in our scriptures, and that they're of all different genres and types, but that they are there to teach us and equip us. So the, the Bible is a place of education, and we, we thought about that last week, and we thought about the fact also that the Bible is a place of equipping the, the verse that the, the, the kids and the, and the different ones were going through today, that 2, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, the inspiration behind the inspired title, that all scripture is God-breathed or is inspired and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God might be thoroughly equipped to do every good work, to do the good works that God has got for us. We talked about having the tools to do the job and, and that the Bible equips us for life. Uh, the Bible gives various analogies of itself. It is a, it is a foundation. It is, it is the roots of a tree. And, and if we have that in our lives, when the storms come and the difficulties come, we'll be equipped and to live life well and to live life fully through the ups and the downs of our experience in our life. And then um, finally last week, as we introduced our series, we considered the fact that, that more than anything, and, and most importantly as we go through this inspired series, that the Bible is a place of encounter with the living God. We considered uh, Sister Mary Magdalene, the, the, the nun who you will meet in your small groups this week in the Lectio series, who said that every time I open the Bible, I expect to encounter Jesus Christ. He is the living Word of God, who we find in the Word of God, the written Word of God. And when we come to Scripture, we come there not to a dead book or a, a library. We come to a place of encounter with the living God. And we've considered the fact that we will be looking at this morning that the whole of Scripture is about Jesus, from Genesis to Revelation. And we finished last week by looking at Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus as Jesus took the disciples through the best Bible study of all time and starting with Moses and the prophets and through to the law, he began to teach them everything concerning himself in the scriptures. It was all about him and it was being fulfilled uh, through his life and his death and his resurrection. And so uh, it is a place of encounter and we are hoping and trusting that through this inspired series, as we do our daily devotions with our, with our books and as we watch the daily devotional videos and as we meet in our small groups and as we spend time with the Lord, as we open the Bible for ourselves, we're expecting that through this time in God's Word, we're going to encounter Jesus. We need to meet Jesus. We need to encounter the risen Christ. More than ever, we need to encounter Him and to meet with Him and to hear from Him and the living Word of God. May that happen to you in these coming weeks as we study God's Word together. So that was last week as we looked at what is the Bible. Now what we're going to try and do this morning is look at the Bible as story. We said last week that the Bible is literature, 66 books, different genres, Old Testament and New Testament. The Bible is revelation of God. But the Bible is also story. It is one long epic meta-narrative. It is one long great story, the greatest story ever told. Uh, Sam in uh, Lord of the Rings asked the question, I wonder what kind of tale we have fallen into. And some people live lives as if they have ripped a few pages out of the book and they have quite literally lost the plot. 
They don't understand what kind of a story they find themselves in. Why am I here? Why do we exist? We consider the question, why is the world at once so beautiful and wonderful like Louis Armstrong would sing? I consider and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. And yet, why is the world, as we look at the conflicts and the difficulties all around us, why is the world so evil and so broken and so struggling? Why is life so hard at times? Why is it so good and why is it so bad at times? Why am I here? What is the purpose of my life? And what we want to do this morning, if, if, we, can, if we can achieve it, is we want to just look at the whole story of the Bible. I want to do it in various acts. I've bought myself a little clapperboard to help you. So we're going to look at the various acts of the story this morning and the, the story of the Bible. And hopefully by the end of this morning, um, that's my water, Hopefully by the end of this morning, we'll have transformed all of these books onto this timeline in some kind of coherent form to explain to ourselves and to remind ourselves of the great story of the Bible. From Genesis, which is represented here, the start of the story, right through the biblical story, uh, the division of the kingdom, the exile, the coming of Jesus and the Gospels, right through to Revelation. And with apologies for those who are sitting behind me, and hopefully you can follow it on the screen um, we're going to work our way through the great story. It's important to do this for various reasons. Because when we read the Bible, it's so important that we read the Bible in context. Sometimes, as Christians, we're really good at playing Bible bingo, aren't we? We kind of squeeze our eyes shut, and we open our Bible, and we pick a verse, and we hope that God speaks to us. And sometimes that works, and sometimes it doesn't work so great. And sometimes we have our favorite verses and we have our little verse cards and we have our little stickers and, and things that we learn. But sometimes we take the text, the text of the Bible, out of context. And it has been said that when you take the text out of context, you are left with a con. And what we really need to understand is that every book of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, has a context. But it is part of the bigger story. We considered last week... The, the words of Spurgeon to a, a young preacher that just as every village and every town in England has a road that leads to London, so too every book of the Bible has a road that leads to the metropolis of Scripture, which is Christ. So Jesus is in Genesis, and Jesus is in Joshua, and Jesus is in the Psalms, and Jesus is in the prophets, and uh, he's in Revelation. And he is right through the scriptures, and all of it points to Jesus and to the gospel. So when we understand the great story of the Bible, when we read the Bible in context, when I open the book of Proverbs, or when I open to the story of Ruth, and read it in my Bible, I understand that it's part of a bigger picture, a bigger story that I find myself in. And it helps me to understand it and engage with it. So we're going to start in Act 1 of our story this morning, which is the creation story, the beginning. And we're going to start with beginnings, which is the book of Genesis, the start of our story. In the beginning, once upon a time, every good story starts. Once upon a time, in the beginning, God created. And uh, it is so true that um, science and religion, science and theology do not contradict each other. Science, modern science, answers the questions um, of, of how and what, but it cannot answer the questions of why. Why are we here? Why is the world so beautiful and yet so broken? Why do we exist? Why do we feel love? Why do we feel sorrow? Why do we have these yearnings inside of us? Science can never answer these questions, but the Bible does, and in the beginning, God created and what Genesis tells us is that God created something that was beautiful and wonderful. He created butterflies, and he created uh, peacocks, and he created elephants, and he created things that were so astoundingly beautiful. And if you can think of the most beautiful scenery that you have seen in your life, the greatest sunset, the most beautiful uh, scene in, of, of a sea scene, or, a, or the rolling hills of your favorite place in the world... The beauty of creation and, and, and God in his creativity and through his word we read throughout the book of Genesis the beginnings of the story. The once upon a time of the story God created and he saw that it was good. 
every day as he created whatever one of those days represents. God created and God saw that it was good. And then the kind of apotheosis, the, 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 the top, the, the peak of God's creation on day six, God created man and woman. And God, the Trinity, God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit said, let us, let us make man in our own image, in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. Let's make man in our own image. We are all carriers this morning, man and woman, We are carriers of the image of God. And God saw that it was very good. But God saw also that it was not good that we are alone. We are made, Meister Eckhart said, we are made, we are created out of the laughter of the Trinity. Let us make man in our own image, said God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're made for community. We're made for community with God. We are made to relate to God. We are made to walk with God. We are made to to have fellowship with God. And the chief end of man is to glorify God and and to love him and to enjoy him forever. You were made for that. You were made to have a relationship with the living God. And you were also made to have relationship with one another. We're not made to be alone. It is not good for us to be alone. We were created to be in community with God and with one another. And so Genesis tells us that story in Genesis 1 to 11, the creation story, the beginning of the story. But we have then Act 2, scene 2 of the story. Act 2, we have the fall. We have the moment where the villain comes, the serpent comes. The one comes and asks the question, that has been asked down the annals of time, can you really trust God? Is God really good? Because God said you can enjoy anything in the garden, any fruit, any tree, but you must not eat of the knowledge, the fruit of the knowledge of, of good and evil. You must not try and make yourself equal to God. You are not God. You are a creature, a creature a, a created by God. And man and woman were tempted, Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan, and they fell. They fell into temptation, and And Romans tells us in Romans 5 verse 12 that sin entered the world through one man and at that point we started to die. As as sin, the Bible says, as sin entered through one man, through Adam, and so death entered through that one man and we all began to die. Death entered the world. And so why is the world so beautiful? Because God created it. Why is the world so broken and so twisted? Because We rebelled against God. We rebelled against his purposes and his commands. And and the judgment of God came upon creation and we were banished from his presence. We were isolated from him. And the relationship that we yearned for with God was broken because of sin in our lives. And the Bible tells us that story of creation. And so man began to spread out into the earth, into Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq and but the, we read in Genesis that the, that the inclination of our hearts became evil and all of our thoughts became evil. And God looked upon his creation and saw the wickedness that had spread like an infection throughout humanity. And, and God decided that he would create and bring upon the earth a great flood that we read about in Genesis, in Genesis 1 to 11. And the story of Noah, the washing of the water over all of the earth, the, the reset button was pressed on creation and, and God said, we're going to start again and wash the whole earth. The whole earth was covered with waters. As if, it's like a replication, as a repeat of Genesis 1 and the beginning of time. And the reset button was pressed and Noah and the animals went into the ark through the door. Those only that went through the door of the ark were saved. Only those that went through the door would be saved from this catastrophic flood. And God, in his mercy... His mercy triumphed over judgment and he, he saved mankind and humankind. And he said at the end, he made a covenant, an agreement with, with Noah at the end of the flood. And he said, I'm never again going to cover the whole earth with a flood with, like, like I've done now. And I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to give you a sign. It's going to be a rainbow. And this rainbow will remind you of my covenant with you that never again will my judgment come upon the earth in this way. Never again will the whole earth be flooded. And I was looking this week as it rained and as the sun came out, there was the most powerful, bright rainbow that was arcing right over this church. And right, I, it was so bright and so powerful. And as I looked up, 
I remembered what God said in his word, that God said, every time you see a rainbow, remember my covenant, remember my agreement. You see, from the very beginning, from the very beginning of this broken story that we find ourselves in, the beautiful creation, the fall of man, from the very beginning, God has a plan to restore us and redeem us and rescue us. The best of stories all have a rescuer. Aslan comes to Narnia. Luke Skywalker comes to save the universe. Maximus comes to Rome. All of the great stories that mimic the greatest story have a rescuer, have a savior, have someone who's going to come and make things right. And right at the start of the story, God says, even though you have disobeyed me and rebelled against me, I have a plan to redeem you, a plan to restore you. And in Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity, speaking to the serpent, to Satan, between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Speaking of Jesus, speaking of a Messiah, a Savior that would come. And so into the end of Genesis 1 to 11, we have the story of the Tower of Babel and the continuing rebellion of mankind where they start to build a tower. They all speak one language at the time. And they said, let's build our way up to God. Let us be God again. Let us kind of do our own thing, build our tower. And Amy talked about it in our readings this week in the morning devotionals. Are we going to build a tower or are we going to build an altar to God? But the people tried to build this tower and build their own way into the presence of God. And the Bible says that God came down. God still had to come down to their great tower. And God dispersed them and, and spread them out across the earth into many different languages, which is where racism comes from and where the divisions of language come from, and which is why we had to study French and German at school. And so we come to the end of this creation story. But then the, the story zooms in on one man in Genesis chapter 12 and uh, the story of Abraham. Abraham, one man. And God comes to Abraham who is in Mesopotamia and God speaks to him in Genesis 12. And God makes an agreement with Abraham and he says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. You see, God hadn't finished with us. God said, I'm going to make a covenant with you as a people. I'm going to make an agreement with you. And I am going to bless the whole of creation through you, Abraham. I'm going to make sure that your offspring, your children, are more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the shores of the sea. I'm going to multiply you and bless you and make you a great nation. And everyone who blesses you will be blessed. And everyone who curses you will be cursed. And the promise came to Abraham that we would all of, be, all of us be descendants of Abraham. We are all of us children of Abraham. But God wasn't finished. God wanted to make an agreement, a covenant. A covenant just marries law and relationship, puts them together, and forms something so binding and so strong. And God said, even though the world is broken, I promise you I will bring a savior. I will bring redemption. I have a plan to restore my relationship with you, with humankind. And it begins now, Abraham. It begins with a covenant people. And Abraham had a son called Isaac, and he got waylaid a little bit in the meantime with uh, having another son called Ishmael, but we'll not go into that now. And uh, he had Isaac, and Isaac had a son called Jacob, and Jacob, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And Israel had 12 sons who became known as the 12 tribes of Israel. And Israel, or Jacob, had a favorite son. Do you know what his name was? He had a multicolored coat, a coat of many colors that has become a West End musical, Joseph. And Joseph, we read in the story, Joseph gets sent, and this is the part of our story here, he gets sent down to Egypt. And uh, in uh, the story, the great arc of the story of the Bible, Joseph is betrayed by his brother, sold into slavery, sent down to Egypt uh, as a slave. And we read about this, and the ongoing story in this next part of the storyline of the Bible from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And uh, for a number of years, uh, Joseph uh, is, is, uh, goes through this journey, but through the purposes of God, Joseph becomes the prime minister of Egypt. And he saves the people through, from famine. We read about it later in the book of Genesis. 
And all of the peoples of the world come to Egypt and Joseph has stored up grain and he feeds them and he saves them. And, and God's promise to Abraham that I'm going to bless the whole of the world through your offspring. Here's the great grandson of Abraham and he's already being used to save the world. A, a precursor of one that would come and save the world ultimately from famine and from plague and from brokenness and from starvation. Jesus Joseph is that precursor of Jesus, but he feeds the people. But then things turn bad in Egypt, and for 400 years, as God told Abraham it would happen, for 400 years, the people of God are enslaved in Egypt. And we read about that in these books. And we read about God's plan still standing, God's covenant plan to restore his people. And he sends Moses... He sends Moses to bring his people out of Egypt, to bring them out of captivity, and to let my people go, God says, God cries. And the plagues of Egypt come, and God speaks through the mouthpiece of Moses, this stuttering leader, this reticent leader that God has plucked out of obscurity and sent to the people of Egypt and to the pharaohs of Egypt to say, let my people go out of this place of captivity where they have lived for 400 years. And through these miraculous signs culminating in the Passover where God said you get the people to daub their doorposts with blood, the blood of a lamb and I will pass over and I will kill all of the firstborn of Egypt but those that stand under the blood of the lamb they will be protected and they will be looked after. And so uh, Moses delivers the people and they stand under the blood of a lamb. Later in our story a lamb will come who will die for the sins of the world, whose blood will uh, bring the greatest Passover, the greatest protection, the greatest freedom, the greatest salvation. And once again, we have a pointer towards Jesus, the Lamb of God, John said, who takes away the sin of the world. So Moses takes the people and they wander for 40 years in the wilderness because God has still promised them a land that he promised to Abraham, a chosen land, a chosen people. And Moses is wanting to take them into that land But through his acts of disobedience, God says, you're not going to be able to go in to the land, Moses. I'm going to send Joshua in ahead of you, your protege. And so Joshua leads the people of God into the promised land and uh, into Canaan. They don't manage to drive out their enemies fully as God told them to do so. And they're surrounded by enemies still. But Joshua leads them into the promised land. And then we have a cycle in the story where the rulers of the people, they're called Judges, Judges and Ruth. And we have this cycle, this circle of judgment that the judges come and people like Deborah and Gideon and Samson and Samuel, those kind of people that are recorded and talked about, they come and they rule the people of God, the, uh, the, the people of Israel. But this cycle carries on that has known right through the story of the Bible is that there is a time where a judge speaks out, a righteous judge, and the people obey for a while and the country does well and then the judge dies and the people rebel and this continual cycle of failure and rebirth and failure and rebirth happens until we come to Samuel, one of the judges and a prophet of God. And in this storyline, as we're walking along, and God is still seeking out a covenant people that has fallen away from him, that is constantly disobeying him, God's still looking for a relationship with them, a relationship with us. God's still looking for that place of restoration. And Moses at Sinai uh, is given the laws, and they have over 600 laws that they will follow to try and be in relationship with God. They make sacrifices They try and live in right relationship with God, but they can never quite manage it. And so when it comes to Samuel, the people say, we want you to give us a king like all the other nations. We want a king like all the other nations. We don't want judges. We want kings. We want you to give us kings. And so Samuel, even though he's displeased with the people because he says, you you have a king. You have a You have a Lord, you have Yahweh, you have a God. You're not like the other nations. The people said, give us a king. And so Saul, 
was the first king of Israel put in place. And for a while, he led them well, but then he disobeyed God. And then David came. And then David's son Solomon came. And they ruled well. David ruled well for a while. And Solomon ruled well for a while and with great wisdom. And during Solomon's rule, many of the wisdom books that we have in Scripture were written or influenced. The wisdom writings are a a type of genre in the Bible, like Job and Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, which are the wisdom literature. They are things like the Proverbs, pithy writings, how to live life well. Ecclesiastes, what is the meaning of life? And, and Psalms, which is the Hebrew prayer book and song book. And so the wisdom writings are there throughout Scripture that, that help us, and that many of them were inspired or written by Solomon himself. And so this is our story so far from Genesis and through uh, the, the time in Egypt and the coming into the promised land and the judges and the kings. But when Solomon was ruling, he taxed the people to the hilt. Does that sound familiar to anyone? <laughs> and when Solomon died, Solomon built the temple of God. And when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam came to power and he took advice, and some advisors were saying, don't tax the people anymore. They're taxed to the hilt. But Rehoboam ignored some of the wiser advisors and went his own way. And what happened was a civil war, a dividing of the kingdom of Israel into what became known as the northern kingdom, which is represented in, in this part of our story, and the southern kingdom. There were 10 tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel that were the, the northern kingdom of uh, and they uh, became what was subsequently became known as Samaria in the northern part of Israel. They became known as Israel. And the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin, they became known as Judah under the, the, the name of Judah. So you had Israel, the ten tribes, the northern kingdom, and you had uh, Judah, the southern tribes, the southern kingdom. And it was a divided kingdom because of Rehoboam and the rebellion of God's people. And in 722 BC, the northern kingdom got into ultimate trouble. <laughs> and they faced a great enemy called Assyria. And the, the Assyrians came in 722 BC and they completely sacked the northern kingdom. And the ten tribes were lost forever, the northern kingdom of Israel, which later became Samaria and Judah, later became Judea, so Samaria and Judea, the two divided kingdoms of what was once Israel. And in 722 BC, the northern kingdom was sacked by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom, Judah, they survived that. They survived that big attack. The Assyrians, they came and besieged the city of Jerusalem, Hezekiah, and Sennacherib came and he attacked Jerusalem just like he had attacked the northern kingdoms. And yet they survived. They found, they were under siege in Jerusalem for a long time, but they found a secret tunnel which is known now as Hezekiah's Tunnel. Those of you who have been to Israel, some of you have walked alongside it and through it. They found this place of provision and somehow they survived this time of the Assyrians. But it was only, it was only a delay in the judgment of God. And there came a point uh, not so long after where the southern kingdom also came up against a new enemy called the Babylonians who had already beaten the Assyrians. So the Assyrians have dealt with the northern kingdom and then the Babylonians eat the Assyrians and then the Babylonians come after the southern kingdom and they come and they take the southern kingdom, Judah, into exile for 70 years. 70 years, Babylon by the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down and where we wept and we remembered Zion. In the Psalms, we read those words. And the people are exiled. They're taken 500 miles from where they live, forced into exile for 70 years in Babylon. And the people are in a complete and utter mess. And throughout this whole time of the divided kingdom, we have the prophets that come and speak to God's people, the voice of God. And we have various prophets. We have Hosea, and we have Amos, and we have Jonah. These were northern kingdom prophets. They lived in the north 
of the kingdom. They're here in the northern kingdom. And so Hosea, Hosea was told by God to marry a prostitute and to demonstrate to God's people their unfaithfulness, how unfaithful they had been to, to God and how their relationship had been broken with God, this relationship that God had always wanted to have with his people and had promised them through covenant. Hosea came and he said, you've broken that promise to God, that relationship with God. And he married a prostitute to demonstrate the unfaithfulness of God's people. Then came Amos. And Amos cried out against, he was from the south, but he prophesied in the north. And he cried out against God's people. And he said, you have carried out injustice and you have carried out usury with your children. And there is so much injustice and forced slavery in you as a, as a country. And he cried out about the heartbreak of God towards his people. And he, he, he cried out, let justice roll. Let righteousness roll. Let, let justice come. That great phrase that, um, like rivers, like Martin Luther King spoke in his I Have a Dream speech from Amos, the prophet. We need justice in the place of injustice. And then you may remember Jonah. You remember Jonah and the whale? Jonah, you remember Jonah being sent to Nineveh? Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. So Jonah, the northern kingdom prophet of Israel, was told by God to go to the capital city of the greatest enemy of Israel, Assyria, Nineveh, and prophesy to them. And no wonder Jonah didn't want to go. It would be like a Jew being sent to Nazi Germany, to Berlin, and to prophesy to them. And yet Jonah was sent to Nineveh, to Assyria, to prophesy to God's enemies about what was yet to come. And so we have these northern prophets that speak to the northern kingdom of God and of God's plans and purposes. But we also have the southern prophets. We have... Um, we have here um, Jeremiah and Micah and Obadiah and Habakkuk, Nahum, Zephaniah, Joel, Isaiah. I think these go under here. That's it. And we have... Lamentations and Ezekiel and Daniel. These are the prophets that prophesied during the exile. These are the prophets that prophesied during the southern kingdom. But all the while, while they were speaking to God's people and to the divided kingdom, the prophets would come, someone like Isaiah. And Isaiah would point still in the depths of, they were about to be taken over and taken into exile and in the southern kingdom, even though they'd looked on and seen the northern kingdom destroyed, their day was coming, the Babylonians were coming, um, they were in trouble, and Isaiah spoke out to them and, and spoke of God's coming judgment. But in the midst of it all, the prophets still prophesied hope and the future. Isaiah, who's, who's one of the great prophets, the major prophets, in Isaiah 9, verse 6, you'll be hearing it at Christmas time. These are the words of Isaiah For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. In the midst of it all, the story of God, the hope was still there that there was someone coming. A savior would come to save the people. The righteousness of God would rest on his shoulders. The government would, of God, he would be known as wonderful in counselor. He would be the child that was born to us, that would save all of God's people from the deprivation and the rebellion and the exile. And in Isaiah 53, Isaiah speaks of the suffering servant and the, the way that he will die and the, and the sins of God's people will be placed on him and he will deliver them and he will restore them. And all the while from Genesis 3.15 when man has rebelled against God, God has always had a plan to restore us. God has always had a plan to bring us back into relationship with him, to reconcile us. 
Which is why he made a covenant with Abraham. Which is why he made a covenant with Noah. Which is why he made a covenant with David. It's why he tried again and again through the judges and the kings to bring a place of righteousness and right living. But we could never do it. We could never do it. We could never live right with God. We were still in exile. We were still separated from God. After 70 years, the Persians had taken over from the Babylonians and there'd been a regime change and the king said, you can go back. You can go back to Jerusalem and you can rebuild Jerusalem and you can rebuild your land. And that story is told in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra and Esther. And the people of God under Zerubbabel go back to the land of Jerusalem from Babylon. Their exile is over after 70 years. They go back to the land of Jerusalem and Nehemiah begins to build the walls again and Ezra begins to find and preach the word of God again and the people have a revival and the prophets come at that time, the remaining prophets who are post-exile, people like Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi and they prophesy but they're not prophesying doom and gloom and the upcoming exile. What they're saying is keep going. Keep going, says Zechariah. It's not by might and it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. And the prophets speak to the leaders and say, continue to build. Continue to rebuild Jerusalem. God is with you. The, The glory of the latter house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And the prophets have a slightly different role after the exile. During the exile, Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah through Lamentations It's a a lament, but it's also looking forward, always looking forward to a saviour, to a new day, to a hope of restoration for God's people. And then this time, as they rebuild, and as they restore Jerusalem and the walls of Jerusalem, the prophets speak out and say, rebuild and continue, and God is with us, and God will help us. And so we have this storyline of the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, And you see the different types of the story from the beginnings through to the exodus and through to the times of Egypt, the coming into the promised land, the times of the judges, and the continuing cycle of failure of God's people. Eugene Peterson says that we are all, at best, uneven performers. He speaks of the sawtooth history of Israel, up and down, up and down, which just represents us and who we are made in the image of God, made for relationship with God, and yet unable to keep the covenant of God, unable to keep the laws of God, unable to meet the demands of God, the 600 plus laws that the people of Israel had to follow and the sacrifices that they had to make, they could never do it. They could never find that place of restoration. But God's promise still stands. And even though they asked for a king, a king other than the king of kings, the Lord Jesus, Yahweh, There comes this time of disobedience, the division of the kingdom into north and south, the sacking of Jerusalem, uh, the sacking of the north in 722 BC by Assyria, the ending in uh, uh, years later in, in the Babylonian conquest of the southern kingdom and the exile for 70 years into Babylon. And through all of this time, when you're reading the prophets, the major prophets and the minor prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Habakkuk and Haggai, what we really need to do is realize that they're speaking into a context. They're speaking into a history, into a big story, into a moment of history. And yet in all of that, they look beyond their moment and they look to the future. They look to a savior. They look to a Messiah. They look to one that will come and save God's people. And so they restore the kingdom and the prophets encourage them. And then there's a 400-year gap between what is this is the Old Testament and the New Testament, the second part of the Bible. The 400-year gap replicates the 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And then something amazing happens. Someone is born, someone who will fulfill every scripture, every prophecy, every promise. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. One who will be born in Bethlehem, as was predicted by the prophets. One who will uh, ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. One who will proclaim the coming kingdom of God. And we have the coming of Jesus, the one that was promised in Genesis 3.15. The one that was marked out and 
and shown to be coming through Joseph and through David and through Abraham, the descendant of Abraham, the son of David, as he was called, recorded in Matthew and Mark, Luke and John, four gospel stories, four eyewitness accounts of the, the birth, the death, the life, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. And Jesus came to restore our relationship with God. He is the second Adam, he's called in the Bible. He is the one not through whom death comes, but through whom life comes. And John 3.16 says that God so loved the world. God always loved us. God always wanted relationship with us. That he gave his one and only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus came to restore us into relationship with God, to reconcile us. There is one mediator, Timothy, we read in in Timothy, one mediator between God and man, and his name is Jesus Christ. He came to bridge that gap. He came to restore that relationship, and he came to forgive our sins and to make us right with God. What we could never do by following the law, by trying harder, by following the judges and the kings, what we could never achieve by our own effort God achieved through his son, Jesus Christ, in offering us free salvation through faith, by grace, not by works, so that we can never boast. It is a free gift of God. And so the story of Jesus is told. His great miracles, his raising of people from the dead, his proclamation, the kingdom of God has come. I am the one of whom was spoken And John pointed to Jesus, John the Baptist, who was the second Elijah, and said, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. The Egyptians, the Israelites in Egypt, they daubed their doorposts with the blood of a lamb to protect them from judgment. And the Passover had taken place. But one came, the Passover Lamb of God, Jesus, who died for our sins. And under his blood, we are protected and made right with God. When Noah took all of those people into the ark and the animals were born, they went in through the door and they were saved from the flood. But there is one who his name is Jesus who says, I am the door, I am the gate, and those who come through me, they will be saved. The one who is a descendant of Abraham and a son of David, he promised salvation. And he offers it to every one of us to restore our relationship with God. And then we have the birth of the church, Acts. The Acts of the Apostles. The story of the birth of the church. Jesus said when he ascended, I'm going to ascend, I'm going to go back to my Father, but I will give you a comforter, a helper, the Holy Spirit. And the church was born at Pentecost. And the Spirit came. And we entered the era of the church that we find ourselves in now. This is where we are in the story. This is where we are in the story between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. We find ourselves here in the, in the church era with the help of the Holy Spirit. And the church spread through Judea and Samaria, beyond Jerusalem, into the far corners of the, of the world. And there was a man named Saul who persecuted this church. And God met him on the road to Damascus and he was greatly converted and he changed his name to Paul. And many of the letters that we find in the Bible, Romans and Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, many of these are the books that were written by uh, Paul right through to Philemon. I'm going to drop these. And so we have all of the letters that were written. And these are called epistles or letters. And they're slightly confusing because some of them are named by the people that wrote them and some of them are named by the people that they're written to. And so you have to discern between the two. And so Paul wrote those. And then there were other letters that were written as the letter to the Hebrews. There's some confusion or... Not sure who wrote that one. And then there's James and Peter and John and Jude. And all of these are letters that were written to the churches and to Christians to explain how they should live and how they should practice their faith and live out their relationship with God. 
the acts of the apostles, the birth of the church, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is told in this narrative story. And then these letters are written to help us to live life well and to live life in the knowledge of God. And finally, the end of the story, Revelation, the ultimate uh, consummation of the story is yet to come much of it. Some of it's happened already. But we studied Revelation fairly recently, the great end of the story, the restoration of all things. And what the Bible promises us at the end of the story, and we read of this in, in, the, in the Chronicles of Narnia, that all of this is just the first page, the beginning of a great new story. And what the Bible promises us at the second coming of Jesus Christ is that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And what the Bible promises us that that the brokenness that we experience now, the weeping and the pain and the bereavement, when we stand at a funeral and we think it was not meant to be this way, we were not made to die, we were made to live, we were made with eternity in our hearts. The Bible promises us that those who believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord will come into an eternal place where they live on a new heavens and a new earth in relationship with God. All things will be restored our relationship with God, the presence of God will be everywhere. We will be restored to him and our relationship with him. And this is what lies ahead of us, the final consummation, the wedding supper of the Lamb, the second coming of Jesus, the revelation, the apocalyptic. And so we have this story. This is the story of the Bible. And you were made, you were made in the beginning, God created you were made in the image of God. The image I, I took the other week, and I don't have any money on me, but if I took a 10-pound note or a 20-pound note, it carries on it the image of the queen or the king. And we too, we carry upon us the image of God. We were made in the image of God. But if I took that note and I squeezed it and I screwed it up, you would still carry the image of God. And many of us, we have broken lives and screwed up lives. But we're still carrying the image of God. We're still made for relationship with God. Yeah. We're still made, we still have the same value, the same worth. God loves us as much as he ever has. And so the promise of God throughout Scripture, the trace of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is a story of these different acts, the creation, the fall, the covenantal relationships with God's people, our failure ever to meet up to the standards of God, and then the promise of redemption and restoration through Jesus Christ, who came upon this earth, God incarnate. You see, all other religions talk about us reaching to God, us achieving certain things, but God, and Christianity speaks of God coming down to us. God does the work. God reaches out to us. God restores our relationship with him. Jesus ascends again. The church is birthed. The Spirit of God is poured out. The church age is initiated. And we await the second coming of Jesus Christ, the ultimate fulfillment of the story. This is the story of the Bible. And when you read it, when you read a part of it, if you're reading in Daniel, there's a story, there's a part of God's story. If you're reading in Genesis or if you're reading from uh, Chronicles, it fits into this great meta-narrative. The thing I want you to remember in all of this is that it all points to Jesus. The Old Testament is in anticipation. The, the, the Gospels are a proclamation. The, the, the um, Epistles are an explanation. The revelation is a consummation of God's ultimate story. It is all about Jesus. And just as every village and every town in England has a road that leads to London, every book of the Bible has a road that leads to the metropolis of Scripture, which is Christ. Pointing forwards to him, looking back to him, anticipating his second coming. This is the story that we have fallen into as, as Sam says in Lord of the Rings, I wonder what kind of story, what kind of tale we have fallen into. And if we can understand this story and, uh, and, and the context of it, when we're reading Scripture, meeting Christ, we'll understand where we are in the plot and what God is doing through his word. I hope that's helpful to you this morning. And... Uh, thank you.
And just to reiterate that, in the evenings, this is from the Bible course, the Bible Society, this timeline. In the evenings, we are doing this over seven weeks. So we're zooming in. Last week, I did Genesis in the evening. Tonight, Paul is doing the Exodus and, uh, and Exodus and the promised land. So he's going he's gonna to zoom in on this part of the story and tell it in greater depth. And over the coming seven weeks in the evening series, as part of our Inspired series, we're going to be going into each section of this story and zooming in to greater detail than we could do this morning. But that is the story, uh, the great story, the great story of the Bible, the meta-narrative. So let's pray uh, together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word which is inspired, breathed by God. We thank you, God, that you have always loved us. You made us for relationship with yourself. You saw that what you made was very good. And throughout all of our rebellion and all of our disobedience and all of our wanderings and all of our failures and all of our screw-ups, God, you have always had a plan to restore us and reconcile us, and redeem us. We thank you that you loved us so much that from the very beginning you planned to send your son, Jesus, to die for us and to restore us into a relationship with God. We pray if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you, does not have a relationship with you, that they will realize that this is what they were made for and they will reach out to you and to faith in you and give their life to you. We pray, God, for each one of us who finds ourselves in this story. Lord, there is a story, there is a plot, and there is a hope. The prophets always pointed to it, that even in the ruins you are building, and you are restoring, and you are planning a hope and a future. We thank you, God, that as we come even into this Christmas season and and remember the son that was born to us, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, that we thank you, Jesus, that you came and that you died for us and rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father. We thank you for the promise of your Holy Spirit and we thank you for the eternal hope of salvation and heaven in your presence, God, for those who have called on your name and been saved. Pray that each one of us will walk through that door of salvation and walk with Christ as we were meant to do. In Jesus' name, amen.